uh, episode one of the uh, Dads of Toddlers podcast. Uh, uh, I'm Tim Hopper. I'm a, a senior data scientist in the cybersecurity space, and I'm here with two uh, friends from the internet, Oscar Boykin and Josh Wills. The, the two of you were talking a, uh, a couple of weeks ago on Twitter about Oscar's thread on build systems, and I made a joke about you guys being on a podcast, and uh, one thing led to another, and here we are. Yeah, thanks for putting this together. I think it'll be a fun uh, chat. It's an important lesson. Don't make jokes on the internet. Look what will happen to you. <laughs> Very severe consequences. You're, 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 uh, you're a great example of that, Josh. Thank you. <laughs> Both of you have recently uh, left your gainful employment for uh, for greater things. Josh, you have a, a background at Google and Cloudera and Slack most recently. And Oscar, you are at Twitter and then and Stripe. Um, and and you're both uh, considering what's next at the moment. Is that right? Yeah. You want to you want to introduce yourself a little bit, Josh, and talk about like where where you got to this point. You know, you're you're, and then I can uh, kind of share some of my thinking as well. Yeah, sure, man. I don't know, like the dark and twisted path that has led me led me down here. Um, so yeah, my name is Josh Wills. I've been an unemployed software engineer, data science person for about three months now. Uh, I Slack for four years before that, and I used to run uh, data engineering there. And then I worked on Slack search infrastructure, and then it's uh, services infrastructure stuff, kind of generally. I was director of data science at Cloudera, uh, where I founded a uh, Apache project called Apache Crunch is a data pipeline library. Uh, and then I was at Google before that, and I worked on uh, ad auction stuff, and I worked on uh, AD testing stuff, and other data infrastructure-y, machine learning-y things. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much me. And uh, I, I guess I will have to get a job again someday, but I don't really want one, and uh, I'm going to try to avoid that for as long as I can. Yeah, Oscar. We have some similarities in the background. I uh, was my first professional thing that I did at, at a grad school was a pro- I was a professor at the University of Florida, and then uh, it turns out being a professor is not all uh, it's cracked up to be, and it's uh, a lot of uh, fundraising and et cetera, and that's like its own podcast, I guess. But um, I decided it would be pretty fun to get into academia. I mean, sorry, uh, industry, leave academia, and I uh, <laughs> I uh, joined uh, Twitter uh, in 2011. And that was a pretty exciting time to be getting into like data. And I was uh, one of the early members of the ads team doing the, you know, there's a great quote about how every, uh, all these mathematicians and physicists are working on getting to people to click on ads. So I was one of those people. And um, yeah, while I was there, I, I, I worked on a system that we built at Twitter that was, uh, you know, kind of helped us make larger scale data infrastructure problems easier uh, on Hadoop. And uh, that's how I met Josh. I had a project called Scalding, which was very similar to uh, Scrunch in many ways. Uh, actually, there were there were a few of these things. I mean, actually, uh, there was another one called Scooby. And actually, Spark was, was being kicked around. The first versions of Spark were being kicked around at, at about the same time. I think that's how we we met. Then I was I was at Twitter for about five years, uh, and then I was at uh, Stripe uh, for four, pretty much doing very similar things. Um, uh, at Stripe, it was more focused on by that point in time machine learning infrastructure, so directly productionizing our machine learning models um, for uh, card fraud, for protecting against merchant fraud, etc. So, uh, but mostly on the infrastructure side, very, very little work training the models at Stripe. So. 
Uh, yeah, and I left and uh, just kind of trying to enjoy. I happen to live on the island of Maui and uh, everyone assumes that my life is like all like surfing and like sunshine and rainbows. Um, but I was actually behind a computer most of the time. So I've been enjoying the last uh, month and a half or so of uh, really, uh, really enjoying Maui. So oh, that's so great. I'm so happy for you. That's wonderful. One of the topics we had uh, talked about having you guys discuss is just how things have changed and and maybe the last 10 years of uh, your time in uh, these tech startup worlds. I mean, I, I, um, I met both of you, I think 2012, 2013 era when, uh, you know, data science and being a data scientist was the hottest thing in the world. And, uh, <laughs> and big data was something still people talked about. And I, I don't know if anyone talks about big data anymore. I certainly have not. <laughs> How have we gotten from, uh, from that to, to here? A lot of Python. A lot of Python, I think, really. It was, it was the key. Just a lot of Python glue. Taking those <laughs> things. There's so much more Python now. Yeah. Yeah. I, Go ahead. Go ahead, man. What I, do you think? I don't know. I, well, I mean, no, I, I think, no, it's an interesting point, but there's like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of layers to it. I do, I mean, there is the interesting social layer of the kind of trend nature of like, you know, the words that people use, like big data, data scientist, even the term, like, what was it? DJ Patel, I think, is credited with coining that term. Um, and then Josh, I think, is maybe one of the, uh, are you credited with, uh, did you think of the joke, the uh, statistician programmer joke? Uh, you, you know what I'm uh, talking about, Josh? I do the, the famous tweet, a data scientist who someone who's better at statistics than any software engineer and better at software engineering than any statistician. That's that's your your doctoral dis- dissertation, isn't it, Josh? It, I, I actually have literally I probably had more citations for that tweet in the academic literature than Oscar Oscar has for his PhD dissertation. <laughs> I think it's probably accurate. That's probably accurate. <laughs> yeah, I was I was trying to be clever uh, one day back in 2012, and that and that. That tweet, which will go on my tombstone, was the result. But I guess I felt like you know I felt back then. I don't I don't know how, how you two felt, but I felt like you kind of could almost like know everybody, you know, who had this who had this weird job title. Like there weren't that many people, uh, broadly speaking, who did it, and you could you could kind of like we we all sort of found each other. And now, obviously, it's it's huge, it's enormous, it's bigger. You know, you, you couldn't possibly keep track. Uh, like I, I think. Of, of all the data scientists and all the variations on the title and all that kind of stuff in the world these days. So yeah, it's just, it's gone crazy. It's just blown up like, like, I, like you wouldn't believe. One, one, one thing that's changed a lot is during those early days, you know, if you look at all sorts of, all, you know, I, I, my view is at, at a, at a kind of up and coming company, which was, you know, Twitter had all these aspirations, but there were, if you look at each of the companies that we would talk to, that we kind of consider ourselves our peers or looked up to, you know, you, we, all of them had um, this kind of glued together infrastructure of several pieces. And you kind of, that was the price of admission, like setting all that up and probably having a, like a pretty competent team do that. I think that yeah. has changed. I mean, that, that's not real. You don't really have to do those things anymore. You can download Airflow. You can use Spark. You can use like, you know, there's there's a lot of things you can just kind of download and install now that really weren't yeah. possible, you know, in the, at that time. And I think it's it's actually made the job kind of interesting because there are a lot of data engineers who got into it you know, just like like a startup grows and the startup changes and you have a very different job from, you know, year to year, this whole industry has changed in a way that you have, I think, have a pretty different job from year to year. I feel like everyone I talk to these days, like everyone is doing a job 
that's kind of like one level below whatever their job description is. <laughs> so like if you're, if you're a data scientist, you're spending most of your time doing what we would think of as data engineer work and like constructing pipelines. And if you're a data engineer, you're working on like data infrastructure sorts of things. And, and what I mean by that is like, at least these days, it seems like you're running more and more applications in Kubernetes clusters. And then if you're like a data infrastructure engineer, your job is actually like running the Kubernetes cluster. And then if you're like a data SRE or data ops person, your job is like putting out the fires in the Kubernetes cluster. Like, I, I don't know. I, 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 I hear what you're saying, like S3 and Airflow and Spark, uh, you know, all the visualization stuff. We have so much more stuff now, but it still feels like everyone is doing like a job that's one level below whatever their job description is. Was that your experience at Stripe? Did you, did you all see that as well? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that's very, that's yeah. a, that's a very accurate take. Uh, the only thing I would say that the, uh, the only color I would want to add to it is that at least you have like these like Lego pieces that maybe it's a crappy set of Legos and you don't like all of them. And you're like, and like, it's like maybe they're too small to build the thing you want to build, but you kind of know, like here, here's a set of things you can try to put together. And most people would think that you're going to put them, you're going to put together your org and infrastructure out of like, you know, in out of K of these pieces, right? Whereas in 2012, 2013, even, you know, you would just start writing code, basically. It's like, you would probably have to assemble almost everything. Like maybe you like, you know, Twitter, Twitter wasn't on the cloud. You didn't have cloud infrastructure, you know, you we had a data center, things like this. So it was like everything there was, um, you know, so I think that, I think it's not a lot of fun, honestly, if you're an engineer, if you like to do it. Because it's like, you're expected, like, here are these tools to play with. Actually, they all kind of suck. And like, you're going to glue them yeah. together in some way and like, you know, grunge things together. And whatever your level is, it feels like you're dealing with some grungy half-baked tool, kind of as you've described. Yeah, very much so. Although it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I think it's like, I don't know. I don't think we like idealize the past. I remember like hanging out. I'm, I'm you know, I don't want to like throw too much shade here. I'm, I'm always throwing shade in my podcast. Um, but I remember hanging out with Dropbox's data team once upon a time. I was kind of like going in. I'm thinking, all right, we're going to have a cool kind of data science conversation, like talk about awesome, you know, streaming tech. And like, honestly, we spent the entire time about keeping like the goddamn main node of their Hadoop cluster up and running. Like that was the all consuming problem they had was just keeping like the main node alive. Right, right, right. Like 80% <laughs> of the time. And it's like, you know, now, now there's, there's like S3 and there's GCS and like, you just, you just don't worry about it. Like it just, right. just works, it, you know, I mean, I get, except in the one day where it doesn't, and then it's like tech industry snow day. Um, but you know, so it's like, I don't know. I, I guess I felt this way at every company I've worked at too, where like, you're always so consumed by the problems that you're, that are giving you pain today. Um, and you immediately forget about all the problems that you, you had yesterday that you've solved already. And so like S3 is great and we don't have these, no one has to, no one has to go debug a name node anymore. It just isn't required. Um, and so we've like instantly forgotten that pain and moved on to, to new sources of pain or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a, there's a pity tweet in there. I'm going to try to figure out what it is. Yeah. I guess, I mean, humans, that's how humans work, right? Uh, if we, if we were satisfied with like any accomplishments, we'd still be sitting around a campfire, right? So it's like, you have to immediately forget your successes and go on to the parts that are causing you the most pain. Yeah, I mean, I, I also wouldn't want to say that things are, I mean, even S3 has a lot of good aspects. It has some negative aspects as well. Like, I, I don't know why, but like, 
I have had a really hard time, I feel like, getting any colleagues really interested in the problem of consistency. Like, you know, S, like at least HGFS is a file system, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> S3 is not, but people are like, ah, fuck it. Who cares? <laughs> what if we pretend it is a file system? Yeah, exactly. It's so true, right? Well, there's the, uh, you know, at least at Slack, we use uh, EMRFS, which was like yeah. that, that DynamoDB thing that Netflix used that Amazon turned into like a product. And that was like our consistency solution and stuff like yeah, that. that and, and yeah, I guess, and that, I guess that worked well, huh? It, it worked. It worked pretty good, honestly. Like it, it did the job. It solved like we had consistency problems, and then you know we didn't have consistency problems. We did have like there was one time where I think it took like eight hours for a file to show up or something wow. like that. But you know, aside from that, it was great. <laughs> one of the things I think about quite a bit uh, is you know all, all three of us are kind of math nerds to some degree at heart. Josh and I have operations research backgrounds and an Oscar physics background. And the big promise when I was in grad school was like, there's, there's not been a better time to be a mathematician. And I was like, Oh yes, finally I've, you know, my, my interest and in skills in math are going to be in big demand in industry. And the reality is <laughs> the last seven years have felt more like a fight to actually find the opportunities to use math versus do a lot of these types of things that you guys are talking about, which are, fundamentally more like just engineering challenges it seems like i don't know about that man i mean go ahead like if you can use you can you can use like topological sorting and uh you know constraint programming systems to figure out whether it's possible to create a set of python dependencies for your machine learning system that exists (laughs) (laughs) anaconda already hired hired michael grant who has a phd in stanford in that to work on that problem so uh uh that's too bad. That's, that's a shame. Okay. There's only one mathematician that's not fun. That's right. And the rest of us suffer. That's right. Well, actually, I do think that's one of the interesting things is with math, like you, the, the implementation type things that are really interesting, once you implement them, you don't have to do it again, and then you can use them. Like we use all these machine learning libraries that have a lot of interesting math going on underneath but they become commodity. The math becomes commoditized, right? I, I think that's true though, actually. The, the math is the, 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 the algorithms are the easiest thing to commoditize, right? So if you can commoditize those and just like put them into code, it works. I, I, I don't know what Josh is going to say. I'll, I'll yield to him, but I imagine you might be like saying that the, the, the difference is like the intuition and the good sense of when to use what, that's not very easy to commoditize. And like uh, that, that just like, um, you know, I don't know, you know, some of it's even taste or just like a, a awareness of the map of the space of the world of like kind of what tools actually exist. So when you see a problem, you know how to apply. I think like, you know, mathematician as like a directory of like of knowledge, like that is very, very difficult to uh, commoditize. Oscar, I'm, I'm going to say one of my, like my, my favorite of your projects, which was like the monoid library that you created. Uh, I think it was derived from scalding and stuff like that. Um, yeah. This very, you know, general idea of like a semi-group and a monoid is a way of representing associative computations that comes up all the time in data processing. Like what is data processing if not a long series of like, you know, associative operations. And I liked, I liked the overarching framework, the organization of like addition and hyper log log counter and like all this kind of stuff falling underneath one library. And the thing I would say that I think where I think math is still useful, um, first and foremost, one is like the law of Ruki abstractions, which is that even if the algorithm is written for you, 
you still have to understand how the thing works because you have to know like when is it appropriate and when is it going to fail. Like even if you're using like the hyperlog log estimator or some other kind of sketch, like what is the error bound going to be on the parameters you're setting, and like what right. is the right trade off the problem you're choosing. Um, so I don't know. I, I like I still love I still love nerding out on that stuff. And even even if the algorithm is implemented in a particularly elegant way, as Oscar did in that library, I I, I still dig this stuff. It's, and I just I don't know, I like the framing of it. And I think that's that's sort of the. Uh, sort of like I'm, I'm like a closet Haskell programmer, even though I mostly make fun of <laughs> make fun of functional programmer. I still deeply admire the elegance of the abstractions and stuff like that. That's the mathematician in me. I mean, I, there's a hiring piece to this puzzle that's also there. Okay. So Stripe really, it was, um, I mean, Stripe's a great place to work. It's, you know, and uh, attracts a lot of applicants. So there's not a hard time getting applicants, but I would say that um, it, it is still at a, at a Growing company, you struggle to hire someone that you're worried doesn't have the engineering expertise or the experience to solve their own problems. And so that's this pro- back to what Josh was Josh's joke about the you know better programmer than any statistician. If you hire someone who's really strong in the math, but they're really, really weak on being able to get everything done, I mean, a lot of these companies favor like a certain amount of independence. And there, there's not going to be someone who's going to help you in most cases do a lot of the work to get your idea in production. And so you could yeah. say, why don't we train like an LSTM, um, you know, on this data and, you know, use the following, you know, features to like, you know, train a model to predict X, Y, or Z. That's relatively straightforward to say. And if I gave you a, you know, CSV with a sample of all the data, you could probably do it and, you know, you know, a day if you're, you know, experienced with it, like maybe you'd have a pretty clear idea as to whether or not the model was good, but actually getting that model to be use- usable by by Stripe as, a, as an entity, that's going to be like probably m- like months of work uh, to integrate with all of the systems to monitor is the, is the, is the model correct? Is the, is the model still correct? Is the, has the, Input features, have they changed, um, et cetera, and so forth. And that's the challenge, I think, with like, back to your point, uh, Tim, about like it being a great time to be a mathematician. I think it's that's right. But I think that industry isn't quite ready to like just slot in mathematicians without uh, like fairly sophisticated engineering e- expertise. So, Oscar, I'm going to see you on that. I'm going to raise you. Um, I think... The problem I felt like we ran into at Slack over and over again, and again, another problem I see as people I talk to these days is really like the lack of generalizable infrastructure. And, and you know, generalized, like we talk about like monoids, it's like a generalizable abstraction for this, this idea of an associative operation. I see a lot of data products, um, machine learning models and otherwise, that are really being built in this super, super, super specific kind of one-off way and not a lot of focus on like generalizable, reusable feature computations, um, reusable ways of ensuring that you don't run into like data leakage problems and stuff like that. Um, right. So, I mean, I, I hear you in the sense that like, you know, we, you're exactly right. Like pure math is not, pure math alone is not going to like get the job done when it comes to having impact on the business and getting, getting products shipped out the door. But at the same time, I think that instinct for like designing things in a way where like generalization is like a thing. Um, you know, it's so funny when I think about like writing crunch, like way back in the day. Um, so the, the genesis of crunch was, I mean, it was, it was similar to like a lot of other people. I, I you know, I worked at Google and Google uh, wrote that paper about Flume Java, which was like their high level 
MapReduce API. And it was great because it really did a great job of explaining like these four fundamental primitive operations that would go into constructing data pipelines that could be used to describe them. Um, like they did a great job of creating both a tool and a library that, you know, was useful for actually solving real problems, but in a way where you could like extract the principles from it and stuff like that and make them useful in lots of different contexts. Um, and I feel like that's what I'm not seeing enough of these days. And that's what kind of bums me out. Like everything feels very, very one-off um, and not, yeah, not generic enough. I don't know. I feel like we've almost gone too hard in that direction. Well, well, Josh, what do you make of this? I mean, I'm sure you've heard this term, like differential, differentiable programming or, or some such, which is trying to kind of generalize the notion of, um, of deep learning and just say, actually, what we're going to do with programming is we're going to walk up and we're going to um, parameterize some function. I don't know what all these parameters are, but it's differentiable. And then I have some some function I'm trying to minimize is my loss function. And then I just go to town and actually that's the way I'm going to, I mean, if, if, I mean, I, I might say that that's pretty much the antithesis of writing like kind of generic libraries, right? Because it's like come with some super particular, uh, you know, architecture that you kind of imagine is going to be useful for this particular set of data. Then we're going to train it on some particular set of data. And it's probably not transferable at all to a very different domain. Yeah. That is a super interesting question. That is, let me give that some thought. So yes, I have heard the term, and yes, I have seen things that way. Um, I, I've seen people talk about this kind of problem. I think um, Andre Karpathy wrote a great, he wrote like a, an essay like called Programming 2.0, right? Which is essentially this, mm -hmm. which is that we're not going to program on code, we're going to program on data, and we'll program on yeah our data and our differentiable functions, and we will generate customized solutions for all the things. Um, that's such a good question. I guess, like, I feel like I'm, I'm like, for whatever reason, I'm going to get into biology uh, when I answer this. Like, so dolphins are mammals, right? But dolphins evolved fins in the same way that fish have evolved fins, right? So even though, like, dolphins and other fish diverged from each other, you know, from a genetic perspective, like, millions of years ago, they still, like, re-arrived at the same kind of general principle solution through an evolutionary process. And so I guess like, I think it's fascinating to apply these differential programming techniques to things like vision and things like say natural language processing, where we don't really understand, like we don't really have good generalizable principles that we can use to build things. Um, but what we discover, like I, I love I love the field, the subfield of, uh, you've guessing Bertology, like this is like ling linguists who study BERT, the natural language, like the, the kind of transformer model. I don't, I don't know people who study that, but I, yeah, I know the I know the model that you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. So there's the, the model, like there's a whole subdiscipline of linguistics called BERTology, which is just like linguists studying BERT and trying to like understand how it works and kind of tease it apart. Because I, I think that's I think that's true. I think that if we apply that technique to lots of different problems, I strongly suspect that we would see the same kind of patterns occurring over and over again. And that like learning in those patterns and understanding those patterns would be incredible. Like, I, like, I mean, Oscar, it wasn't like when you were creating like the monoid library, the bijection stuff and all that, you weren't like up in your ivory tower, right? You were like solving real problems. And right. because yeah. you were solving problems in the context of the person who had this background that you had, you saw 
the generalizable pattern that fell out from them. And that's, that's fantastic. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's, that's how MacReduce was born. That's, that's great. So I, I don't want to dunk on it too much, but I do kind of feel like we've reached the point with some of this ML stuff where like there are some generalizable patterns and we, and we do need to write them down and, and get them out for everyone to use. And maybe I, maybe I should, maybe I should be doing that instead of just like playing with my son all day. I'm not sure. Anyway. I hope he doesn't hear this uh, recording later. I think I gave, I like, I did another podcast where I talked about how, uh, it it took my wife and I four days to come up with his name. So I'm looking forward to obviously the internet no longer existing in about five or six years. So he never finds out about this stuff. Anyway, (laughs) if you you ever find any, if every, it's it's been a matter of time, he's going to find a bunch of my talks on YouTube where like it's dad saying fuck this and fuck that. And that's going to be tough to explain to. So anyway, I've got, I've got a lot. A lot of internet debt built up already. I, I think we can only hope that our children will one day find our uh, tech talks from the 2010s and, and devour them. My, my dad was a my dad's a newscaster, and I've actually found video of him from like the 70s uh, on YouTube and stuff like that. And that's just an, uh, such a trip for me to like see my oh, dad. Oh, that's amazing! On, on TV when he's like younger than I am now, it's fantastic. Um, I'm just hoping that I, I honestly, we just need to get self-driving cars done in the next 12 years. That's all I'm hoping for: <laughs> self-driving cars. So, Never have to learn how to drive. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if we want to. We want to really turn on the old man yelling at the sky thing. <laughs> I think that's a good jumping off point because a lot of the folks that I knew who, who I worked with on ads and data at Twitter went on to do self-driving cars at uh, Uber and at Lyft. And I remember them recruiting me in 2016, saying, "Oh, like we're definitely we're going to have a product in four years." And there was so much groupthink around this that everybody was so sure of that. And I, I would say that one of my real kind of like I became maybe, you know, you know cynicism, I think, is just generally bad. But I, I think I've become a lot more cynical in the last you know several years that I feel like a lot of the industry is just like overly trend driven. And there's just like there's not a lot of thinking for there's not a lot of independent thought. It's like, you know. Yeah. Why, why are self-driving cars coming in four years? Because actually, you know, you know, I've heard five other people who tell me that and I think they're smart and it's just like this big loop, right? That like th- those, th- each of those four people are pointing to like a graph. There's a, there's a graph of five nodes <laughs> and each of the nodes is repeated one thing uh, that they thought kind of with half-heartedly and then they all believe it very strongly because uh, they've got four, they're connected to four other nodes that say like, yeah, self-driving cars are going to be here in four years. And I feel yeah. like infrastructurally, like I see that with technology choices all the time where it's like, you know, why should you use X? Well, I don't know. Everybody, it, you know, th- that's the thing to use now. And I get really worried that that causes these really rapid fits and starts of like, well, okay, like people can wake up tomorrow and realize actually that's not the hip thing anymore. Now the hip thing is thing Y. And uh, it, it's just trend chasing and it's, it's not really, the, you know, it's replacing a lot of like rigorous thought on like, you know, actually evaluating technologies like in and truthfully reporting them. You know, it's like, I, I, I feel like you, very many conferences are advertising, uh, advertisements for some product, right? It's like, hey, you should use X. It's not like, like a real measurement. It's not a science paper. It's not a, like, you know, even a, you know, IEEE industrial type conference. It's like, yeah. I'm going to try to sell you on using X, Y, and Z. Um, and I'm going to like, yeah. you know, lowball or, or, you know, hide the, the faults. I'm going to like oversell the successes. I don't know. That's uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know what, what made me spun out, but you're, you're kind of feeling that there's lack of generalizability kind of relates to me. Like the industry just feels very kind of much uh, trend driven right now. And uh, it's like, it feels get kind of dangerous to progress. Mm. 
I, uh, I mean, I, I'm going to see your like angry old man and raise you, uh, angry old man, uh, blockchain, really blockchain, <laughs> like the whole, like, I don't know. It's like, there's these, there's sort of these epochs of startups, right? Like there was the early web stuff and then there was like the social web stuff. And then we had the whole mobile thing. And then like we had the blockchain thing and it's just like an absolute waste of a generation of technologists. And I realize I'm, I'm, I mean, I obviously Tim, I hope no one ever listens to this podcast because I'm just going to get like such angry, <laughs> angry tweets at this. Like, but uh, you've got to be kidding me with this blockchain stuff. It was an absolute, it was like, ah, uh, like this is like the chat roulette of, of technology cycles or whatever. It just drives me crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, that, that strikes me as a uh, <laughs> as a solution looking for a problem, um, and which I don't really think that we have a lot of those in the data and ML space. Fortunately, where it's like there's something you legitimately don't know what you want to use, like a technology for, but like somehow it's still popular. I don't, I don't think we have too many of those. Fortunately, maybe that's maybe that's our own bias. Maybe it's possible that there's like blockchain applications that I am just like. Like I just they elude me. I am just not sophisticated enough to see like what the point of this is, and, and the fact that I inherit I inhabit the data ML space. Everything's like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. I don't know. I, I have this like thought, I have this idea around like the analytics value chain. Can I? Can I like? And I sound very business schooly when I say that. Um, but I think that is like when I'm doing like end to end data processing stuff. I need some way of ingesting my data. I need somewhere to store it. I need some way of doing computation on it. And I need some way of like visualizing and communicating the results. And so that could be like, I have a Kafka cluster that feeds data into S3 and I spin up, you know, like a Hadoop cluster or whatever to do processing on it. Or I use Snowflake or whatever. I have some sort of compute solution. And then I'm visualizing this uh, using like Looker or Tableau or any of these kind of different systems. Um, and what I've seen now in like in the data space is like the, the sort of the innovation and the startups or whatever are kind of moving to like a meta level on top of that value chain. Like it's a lot more, people are a lot more focused on like data catalog solutions yeah. or metadata stuff. Did, did you guys have anything at Stripe that you use for this stuff? Like what, like what did, what did, what have you seen here? Uh, no, we didn't have any good data catalog stuff at all, really, to be honest. So, uh, so I've seen two really different models Twitter's model was it kind of like it was more like service oriented architecture wasn't really mono um, or microservices but the side effect really nice side effect of, of Twitter's model was that we just wrote uh, we had thrift services or you know if, you know the kids today might know those is like gRPC type stuff um, where all you have to do to for to like satisfy your data scientist to a, like a decent degree is Take the request, the the serialized request object that comes in, and the response object that goes out, and you have a schema for them. So that's relatively nice to work with. And we write them onto a Kafka queue with timestamps, and that's that's all you've got. So um, that's it's actually pretty nice because it's uh, you know it's it's the real history of what really really happened. Uh, Stripe took a different model. It's like a financial type company, and so it's like it's got it's got and so financial. Data is just like orders of magnitude smaller than social data, so it's it was always kind of addicted. I would say maybe that has a bad negative connotation, but um, really liked having full data dumps of all the history of uh, of just like snapshots of the database. So it was more of a database snapshot type approach. And when I've spoken to peers, it seems like people are in both boats. If you're forced to do the like log based approach. 
Like, you know, every, if you ask any data engineer, they love a log-based approach. Like, log the data as it happens. That's what, you, you know, we recompute views of that. Um, if we need to re rewrite the log, we can do it, et cetera. Almost no data engineer I ever talked to is like, no, no, no. What you need is snapshots of databases and that are mutating all the time, you know? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Agreed. Yeah, so I, I I just I just mentioned that. So back to your point about like uh, uh, data catalogs in the in the world where you have snapshots of the data, you kind of like it's a little bit more clear what your catalogs are because it's exactly your database tables that you already have. So it, it's a little ugly because you're kind of exposing internal structure of the actual app and systems that you're building to your data scientist. Where it, like it's I think it's nicer to say okay, I am intentionally logging X, Y, and Z according like these are these are semantic things, not. Like like happenstance of data structures that I'm like jamming into a database. I think it's a it's a more intentional thing to do explicit logging. But what if you the, the upside is that the catalog is kind of in some sense handled for you. It's like a messy catalog, but you have it. Uh, Twitter, on the other hand, um, did uh, did have to build the thing that you're talking about a data catalog. We did um, you know you, you know people use MetaStore you know have MetaStore for a lot of these use cases. We also built some stuff on top of that to uh, you know to to integrate with with more of the systems that we had built that we didn't want I mean, maybe in respect, we should have just gone all in on Metastore. I think most people probably think that they should have. But um, anyways, yeah. it was like a, a weak, uh, kind of weak coupling to Metastore with an additional service on the side that had extra data. We call this a doll data abstraction layer. That is fascinating. That's fascinating. Uh, Slack, I think, classically had both, like both the like log-based system uh, for the like the, the services or whatever you would call them. Um, but they, were, they weren't really like, like microservices. They were like macro services by and large. Um, mm -hmm. But they all had logs, and then we had the like database backup snapshots for yes, exactly that for financial reporting reasons and other sort of use cases, and that kind of thing. Heavily, heavily relied on the Hive Metastore uh, as the metadata source of truth. Yeah, that's just anyway. That's, that's super interesting. This must be like why I just never ran into this problem. I don't. I just didn't have. We just didn't have that many different microservices where keeping mm -hmm. track of all of them actually was like a problem above and beyond like what you could derive from like just looking at the thrift schema or the, the corresponding hive table for the very obviously named service services log definition. Or like yeah, that's that's super interesting. That's very helpful. Well I think where it really gets interesting for data scientists is the next layer up. Like I'm you probably read that uh, that Google there's this like famous I don't know, the paper isn't Basically, the the title is the the best part of the paper, almost. But I mean, like you can kind of imagine what the rest of it says. But like, uh, you know, I don't know, something like data machine learning or data science is the high interest credit card of, of technical debt or something. Something this the the D Scully paper, machine learning, machine learning colon the high interest credit card of technical debt. Yes, excellent paper. Right. And it kind of de details a lot of the problems that people who've worked in the space kind of see, as a, especially one, one that really stood out with me is that um, when you start to share artifacts, be it like models or derived feature sets or et cetera, like that coupling across this, your systems is is like, what systems track that, you know? So most people don't have tools that really track that. And at scale, it gets really challenging. You've got some team A over here, team B is consuming something they wrote, and then team A decides they don't want it anymore and they stop making it and now team B has an incident. And I saw many, many examples of this in my time at, uh, at, at, at Twitter and at Stripe. And so I think that really the interesting parts of data catalogs is not kind of like the source data or the event data, the data, the database dumps, or even like logs, but it's like, how do you describe and share and talk about, um, 
like the how, how production ready various data sets are to share across these data teams. That I think is still a very open area. Maybe, maybe there's a great tool out there, but I, I don't know about it. Uh, that's a great one. I remember so Google had one where uh, the search team changed, like there was a language encoding, right, for every search query. Uh, it was the two letter thing like E N E F D E whatever, right? And then the search team changed it one day to a four letter encoding instead of a two letter one, and it broke the ad click prediction model like fairly catastrophically. <laughs> right, right. None, none of the features worked anymore because it was oh, they were all trained on two letter strings and a four letter string came in, and that was exactly it. No one told anyone. Why would they? How could they possibly know where the stuff was used? Oh, that's fantastic. And yes, I am right there with you. I have no idea if anyone is working. I'm sure someone must be working on this problem, but I, I have not seen a good, keeping with my current theme, appropriately generalizable solution to this problem. But I, I would be, I would love to see one. So, so that brings me around to actually back to like the 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 point of the, the conversation that got us going here. I've long had this idea that the solution is something like a build system for your data that you describe, okay, here, this, so, um, you know, build systems, you know, if you're familiar with ones that are like Buck or Bazel or Pants or things like this, they're, they're or, or Make, uh, a lot of people might be familiar with Make. It's like, if you want to produce this thing, it depends on these K inputs, and then you run this program in a certain way, and that spits this thing out. And one, um, in some sense, like, uh, you know, that is a data build system. What's the, what do I mean by data build system? I think one difference with data is that a lot of these calculations are extremely expensive, like $100,000, you know, million dollars in some cases to train some of these, in some cases more. Um, so that, I think that changes like how like eagerly you, you are, or you want to invalidate previous artifacts. So that's one thing that a data build system has to ch challenge with the cost of producing the artifacts. Um, the next thing is de declaring, um, usually in data build systems, you're, you're, you care about time. So the aggregation or my, you know, my roll up of all my analytics for today might, if it's like an all time history, it maybe depends on yesterday's all time history plus the deltas that came in today. So I want to have a way to talk about time in a way that most build systems for computer programs that build like artifacts don't really have any notion of time. You check out the repo and it's like a, a fully visible graph. There's nothing else coming. You know, future commits will go, but they throw out everything. They, you know, to to some degree, there's there's caching, etc. You there, there's some greatness here, but I feel like if we could get as a, an industry a way to integrate our notions of building things with our like workflows and like our permission systems, like. I, this is how you produce that, that language set that you're, or that search log you're talking about. And now if I change my schema, that's going to invalidate something that this build tool kind of detects that your system over there has declared that it depends on it. And we can kind of see if there's no hidden dependencies, you know, and I think it's these hidden dependencies that have really caused a lot of these problems. That was kind of the genesis of the kind of uh, back and forth we were having. Um, and I still am interested in that problem in, in, in that space. Uh, and I think a lot of people are stabbing at it vaguely, but I don't, I haven't seen anyone really solve it really, really well. Like, I don't know, like Pachyderm was doing things like this. Airflow to some degree, you could say, is like marching in this direction. I know a friend who's got a Conducto is a, a, a thing that's going to be launching that's uh, also in this space. But, you know, it's, I don't know. I think that was kind of the attacking that problem was kind of, to me, top of mind after my time uh, at Twitter at Stripe and Stripe. I am, I guess, I am broadly interested in this question as well. Um, I tried to build something, it was, it was a relatively limited thing, but I tried to build something like this at Slack. Um, 
it was it was Slack had the problem of like we hired uh, Facebook data scientists who were like primarily Hive users and Twitter data engineers who were primarily like Scalding users. And the question was like, how exactly can we integrate these two teams together so that they can kind of collaborate on a common code base when one of them really wants to use Hive and one of them really wants to use Scalding. Um, and so my terrible compromise uh, was to like bring everything into Spark, which had obviously SQL bits and Scala bits, um, and try to create a framework for expressing dependencies between like the calculations of various columns across tables in a way where like yes, you could like track the lineage of a given column and stuff like through mm -hmm. the like build an execution tool at first. Um, this, it turned out like I, I tried this and it just didn't it just didn't work for like 18 different reasons. Um, one, I was obviously like I was at least nominally director of the team and had like other stuff to do besides just working on the tool full time, um, and I just fundamentally couldn't get anyone excited about it. Uh, but like the folks at uh, the folks at Fishtown who were doing DBT, like the mm -hmm. data build tool, like SQL based system, um, they basically built the thing that I wanted like at Slack for like representing these relationships and these dependencies. Again, just for the context of SQL, which is not mm -hmm. like the full machine learning, like, you know, Python, Scala, et cetera, et cetera, workflow that folks use today. But they did a really, really good job at kind of representing this stuff. But anyway, I, I ended up like actually investing in their company um, because they built something that I, I had wanted for a long time, uh, just like correctly. Um, but yeah, I mean, they have this notion of like some computations are incremental and some things can be left as views and some things need to be materialized and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, getting to the point, I think, where you could just express these sort of costs as like as, as like a higher in, in like without having to explicitly say, um, like, yes, like materialize this, yes, incrementally do this, like where the system could be smart enough to figure out like this is sort of my desired state of the world. This is how I long how long I want everything to take. This is how quick I want updates to occur. Like, like, I mean, it's, it's cliched at this point, right? But like Kubernetes style, like declared in specification, this is what I want to exist. Yeah. These are the rules that have happened. Go, go do it. Like, go make it happen. That kind of thing. That's, that's the dream. No, it sounds cool. I haven't had a chance to dig into that. I saw that, like, I don't know, Dimitri had a really nice blog post, uh, Dimitri Boy, Um, uh, and he, he mentioned, he called out DBT, uh, 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 and I, I, it, it looked interesting. So that's cool to hear. It, it spoke to me in the sense of like, with this theme of, of you know, it basically he's trying to create like, uh, it's, it's funny. It's like, they're trying to create a new kind of role in companies, like akin to data scientists once upon a time, they're calling it, they're calling it analytics engineer, which I think it's, it's like, it's reflecting this idea. Um, I, I guess what I, I would be curious for y'all's perspective on this. It seems like data scientists, do a lot more software engineering these days than I feel like data scientists did. Maybe I don't know, actually, I'm sure that's true. I think I see data scientists doing more and more software engineering kind of stuff, like across the board. And I think um, it's like so, like way back, like at Google back in the day, in the same way, like if you were at Twitter and you wanted to analyze the logs, uh, you need to learn Scala so you can write a Scalding pipeline, and that that sort of like creates this this relatively narrow, you know whatever like funnel or whatever for people who want to become data scientists like google was the same thing if you wanted to like analyze the logs you need to learn this this terrible programming language called sawzall uh that rob pike inflicted on google before he went on to inflict go on the rest <laughs> of the world um and, but like again it was like it was a very high bar it was like you had to you had to it was a real programming language you had to really program to do it 
and then like when data scientists started taking off like the the title became like sexy and cool and then it was like anyone could be a data scientist um but and then nowadays i see i kind of see like the software engineering aspect of it creeping up more and more like i'm a data scientist and here i am writing a custom resource for a kubernetes cluster <laughs> like <laughs> it's in some ways it's gotten like even more and more software engineering once again i i, I don't know if i'm trying huh. to make a point with this interesting i I would say I, I I wouldn't say that I observed that latter movement uh, at you know because when you were at Slack I was at Stripe so I would say that I did not really see that as much one one the way that we organized we had a pretty hands on uh, machine learning infrastructure team that tried to do yeah. all those kinds of things that you talked about so it's like we we and we had a different problem but it's like you know here are some rails that you can run your trains on and it goes to this station and that station. And that's pretty much it. And if you if you want to ride those rails, it's probably going to be really straightforward. You know, um, you want to go yeah. to a town that's not on the on the railroad line. You're you know, good luck, good luck and Godspeed. And like probably almost nothing got shipped that wasn't on those rails because because of the problems you're talking about. I th- but I think that's the difference. I think like it's Slack production machine learning primarily meant search ranking, and so that meant we had to do like the search ranking team, which again, nominally would be working on, you know, search ranking, had to do everything, like build up the services infrastructure on the JVM. And, oh, you guys want to use the TensorFlow stuff? Great, here you go. Go build yourself a TensorFlow cluster. And, oh, you want to run that in production? Okay, you need to figure out how to productionize the gRPC TensorFlow service. So there was, like, when you only have, like, one machine learning use case at a company, um, right. The team that works on it is going to ha- be responsible for building all that infrastructure, as well as the oh yeah, sure, the machine learning model at some point in the future. Um, once you've shaved all these yaks and all that kind of good stuff. Well, you know, the, the way that you say that now, it kind of occurs to me. I wonder how you would think about this. My my, my experience with machine learning, actually, I've never been on machine learning or, or worked on machine learning at companies where it was related to super directly related to the customer, like to some like experience. So like search ranking at Slack or you know, Google, you know, it's a human, it's the user is going to type something and they, they want like a good experience. So I worked on like ads at Twitter. So like, it's basically like, Oh, here's this website. And then there's an API call that we're going to hit at this point, And you're going to tell us, you know, what to stitch in here. And for us, yeah. like we did, you know, you know, the users weren't demanding the ads. And so we could actually really cordon off, like, here's a model. And this model just needs to predict as accurately as possible um, what the click probability is. And then we use that to, to do ranking of the ads and in, in all the standard ways. And it's Stripe, but was somewhat similar. It's like, here's a credit card charge. Should we block it before we ever hand it over to the uh, to the, the the banks and the, the processors? You know, no one really, you know, that's not like a part of anyone's experience. In fact, Stripe's customers are merchants. They're not actually even the buyers at that point in time. So we could actually pr- super clearly like delineate where that like call is. Like, here's the part for machine learning magic, right? <laughs> and so like the people who worked on those problems really just worked on like models all day long. In most cases, in most cases, there there, there are some experience aspects to uh, Stripe's product radar um, with, with like for, for merchants to visualize 
visualize like what are their block rates, et cetera, and so forth. But the modeling part of it, like at that moment, there's no experience there, right? There's no, there's no human that's like a customer of Stripe. So I think, um, I, I wonder if that plays a role in the difference between like what it's like at Slack, where it's like, it's like a big part of your experience for your, for your users. Um, it's kind of, I think the funny thing for me about working on search at Slack was it made me appreciate uh, kind of how easy Google has it like as a search problem in some ways. And I realize that's kind of like blasphemy, right? Um, but all of, like basically all of Google's stuff that they search is public. Um, and like, you know, if you type in the search query, uh, I can type in the same search query and it's totally fine if I get to see all the results and stuff like that. Right. right. Um, that's, that's like not true. It's like not even remotely true. It's not even true for people who are on the same team. Like everyone has a unique search experience. And in fact, it would be like disastrous for anyone to see other people's search results. That would be like among the worst possible things that could happen to Slack. Um, and so that set like a fairly, like the ability, like the fact that you cannot look at the corpus that you're searching over, that's a pretty, pretty high bar uh, in terms of like how good you can ever make the user experience, probably speaking. Oh, wow. Um, that's, Google, yeah. I mean, at Google, I would say to, I, I mean, for what, this is like, it's hard to be like sort of like rah rah and Pollyannish about advertising, um, but I'm gonna do my best. <laughs> like when I when I was there, the, I was I worked the team I worked on was ads quality. It was akin to the search quality team on the search side, and our goal, honestly, swear to God, lived lived every day at least at least once upon a time uh, that we wanted people to come to Google for the ads. We wanted the ads to be so good that you would come to Google for the ads, and so that meant. Uh, that even for the machine learning models, where we would do a major machine learning model release, uh, we had a human evaluation team. We would actually like run the ads that would be shown for queries, like in front of humans, who would tell us like which machine learning model was better. It was like like a UX thing, just like they would for search results. Which again, back at the, back in the day, were not a machine learning model. They were hand tuned. Like they were hand tuned. Every every change, it was just. Um, it's kind of a joke. It was like one of the worst bits of code at Google. Unsurprisingly, was like the function that did search ranking, you know, it was like 20,000 lines long in one file called the A score. Uh, like was just like an absolute disaster. Uh, it was so funny. It was this guy came up with this really elegant hierarchy for like plugging in these like composable scores and stuff. And it just never got used. There was one score and it was called the A score. And it was just like an absolute disaster. That's it. <laughs> it, was like, it was like all this, all this beautiful, elegant code surrounding this, like, this deep, dark, ugly secret that actually contains like the whole brains of the operation. But yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it was like, yeah, was the UX thing was a really big deal. And, and you're exactly right. I think like if I was working on fraud or something like that, it would be refreshing, I think, to not have to worry about these concerns. But I think too, it's like, you know, the core of Slack's business is really chat and chat and channels and stuff. Channels, organization, that's really the core of their business. Search is a piece of that, but like at Stripe and at, at Google too, like, the, the fraud, like getting good at fraud, that's the difference between like success and failure as a business. That's a really big deal. That's like not a joke. Google search, like this is all you do. If you don't do this good, then like you're not a very, you're not a very good product. Yeah, it also kind of hits me. One of the things you're talking about here kind of talks to me about the diversity of use cases for machine learning and how different kind of like how, how sure you, how clean your labels are, I guess. Because I really like, you, you know, you started this discussion with the problem of Slack where it's, I, I don't know what optimization function you were trying to optimize. Uh, you know, n n yeah, I guess maybe some of the, the standard ones for like, you know, uh, 
but you could, but the fact that you couldn't inspect them then over to Google where you could inspect them, but then the problem, you know, there, there are people out there who are dealing with problems like Stripe where it's like, it's totally unambiguous. Like eventually we will have a label for every charge as to whether or not it was disputed, right? There's like, like total ground truth situation. And your job is simply, um, well, one of the jobs uh, is uh, yeah. to, to predict that, that bit of information that's coming from the future. Totally. I, I would love that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really well defined, right? And so let me tell you how great it is. But like, I don't know, it's an important thing for your career. Like work on easy problems. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, just my thing is like, I don't know, Google did it right. Like work on easy, easy, lucrative problems. I think I would love, I think at every company, I think data is very useful for growth. I think that's true at every company. I think at every company, data is very useful for performance, like understanding like performance, quality, reliability, like data is incredibly useful. Um, but I think the companies, like the company I want to work at next, whenever I work again, is I want, I want a place that has that kind of core, that has a core machine learning model. It really has a machine learning model at the absolute core of the business, kind of linking, ideally one that like links the growth uh, the growth system and the performance system together like that. I just, I just love that. And I super took it for granted having it at Google. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my, my number one filter for like next co. That's what I want to do next. You, you really think you're employable, Josh? I don't, I'd be honest with you. I, I honestly like a lot of things. Like really, I think especially like doing these, it was so funny. I was, I, I did, uh, I did software engineering daily, uh, which, which, which you guys should definitely do sometime. And I threw shade at like Mongo, uh, MongoDB, like right after that, which again, Stripe runs on MongoDB. So I, I, I guess I can't throw that much shade here. Um, <laughs> and then I got, and then I got a recruiter call to come like be the product manager for search at MongoDB. And I was like, ah, that's not, they're probably not going to be happy with me. I don't, I don't think that's going to be a good pair, a good match. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I may not be employable. I may not be employable. You, you're, you may well be right. I don't think there's ever going to be any competition again for a software engineering daily guest after you, Josh. You set the bar. <laughs> Is that, so I, I don't, I don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> like, I, I had no idea so many people listen to this podcast. It was like so funny. Yeah, it, it's, it's huge. I think I can't keep up with it. It's, it's amazing, but I, I can't keep up with it. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. I, I, I don't do anything. I don't do cereal. I, I just, I'm like often, I just listen to music and read books. I don't, I don't even understand the genre. We've already talked a lot about this, but what's uh, this industry has changed so much in the last ten years? Where is it going to be ten years from now? I think you know. So I'll, I'll say my, my nerdy thing. Um, there's so much Python right now. I'm, I'm going to close where I left off. There's so much Python right now, but I am seeing in like I'm seeing still this like this impedance mismatch between a lot of production systems that are written in Go or Rust or C or whatever. Uh, and like machine learning systems developed in Python. And there's the same impedance mismatch in the data structure within the data systems, which are still like primarily JVM based. Um, and like these Python layers on top of them. And I want to really, my, my fondest wish is that in the next 10 years, we solve this. I actually feel like it's kind of unfortunate. Actually, this is, a, I'm going to throw another blast on this thing out there. I actually think Scala has become kind of a great data science language over the past few years. Like there's actually like a bunch of really good libraries and stuff for it now. Um, and it's, Sort of like, I, I guess, again, I get it. It's like GPUs and all this kind of stuff is very important. And But it's like everyone is doing everything in Python, um, both because they like Python and it's easy to use. And I think because like they're afraid that at any moment they might have to fit a TensorFlow or a PyTorch model to solve a problem. You know what I mean? 
like like how everyone in San Francisco walked around wearing like camping gear or like hiking gear as if we might just go, you know, scale Mount Everest. <laughs> everyone is riding a Python because like just in case we need to fit a we need to fit a deep learning model. It's okay. We're in Python. Um so, but I, I would love, I guess, like, I don't know, I don't know what it would take, uh, like, I mean, maybe this is like a, a sort of nightmarish version of Python 4, but what would it take for there to be like a Python-centric systems language or some systems language that's designed to interoperate with Python that we could build everything in so we could have just like one language for stuff? And it's kind of like, I mean, if the language has to be Python, then like FML, let's make it Python. Um, but yeah, this, I just feel like this impedance mismatch is just kind of killing us. And that's that's the one thing I would like to see different in ten years. That's my that's my fondest wish. So that's more of a oh. dream than a prediction, I think. But it's, what's what's the joke? Is like the best way to invent uh, predict the future is to invent it, right? And I'm so let's let's invent it. Let's just do it, right? You've how heard far, it here first, folks. Josh Wills is going to uh, write the next uh, language for data science. I was, I was actually kind of hoping that someone on the call would hear this and be like, "Oh yeah, that's a great idea." Yeah, I, do that. I know a good candidate uh, for that. But, yeah, unfortunately, too much of my life has already been being like nerd sniped into like, uh, yeah, that's like, that's basically Avi Bryant's uh, uh, role in my life. Uh, nerd snipe me into like, you know, multi-year uh, technical project. I would love to say that in 10 years from now, I don't know, it's like, you, you know, like where we talked about, we're old men here. Uh, I remember coding before people like felt like they had to have, certainly like, they might not even have like a unit, they might not have a test suite. They might not, they certainly probably weren't measuring code coverage. Um, maybe they were using a really crappy version control system. Those are things that are actually like progress that we, we've we really, we've gotten past. Like, you know, Git maybe is ugly to use, but it's like, it's it's solid. You know, you, you're you doing full snapshots of your of your code. You can go check back out. You can do Git bisect. You know, these things work. They're, they're continuing to get better. So that was a real step up and it's a qualitative change. You know, people do testing now. I, God, I hope that they do. It seems like type systems are, 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 are spreading. You're seeing like TypeScript. You're seeing Python 3 with type hints. Um, so things kind of get a little bit better. So I would like to believe that these pro these integration problems that we have now between like, yeah. you know, the things like I want to go train a model to do X, but actually you have to solve this massive integration pan and write your Kubernetes YAML and everything yeah. else. Um, that those yeah. are the things that we can actually uh, get solved in a much nicer way. And that the relative fraction, I, I let me just say, how will things be? I think the relative fraction of time that you're doing modeling and you're doing analysis and like the science -y part of the data science, uh, I hope can be a larger fraction than it is today in 10 years. That's my that's my hope. And I, and I, th and I would bet that it will happen. That would be my bet. Um, so uh, it'll, it'll happen by some of the problems we talked about just being solved and people rolling up their sleeves. Maybe even one of them is what, what Josh mentioned. But I think we'll, we'll actually look back and say that it was just like ridiculous how primitive it was when, you know, in 2011, uh, up to even 2020, you know, so. Yeah, I would say amen. Amen to that. That'd be fantastic. I love it. Excellent, guys. And thank you very much for uh, coming on the, the, the uh, first and hopefully not only uh, episode of this podcast. Thanks so much, Tim. This was great. Good to see you, Oscar. Good to see you as always. Thanks for thanks for hosting and putting it together, Tim. Good to good to talk to you, Josh. Yeah.